Welcome to Answers That Count. If you own a business, you can count on us to give you the answers you need to succeed in all aspects of your business. And now, here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Welcome back for another exciting show. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove, with Answers That Count. Thank you for joining us again, and you know where to find us. We're on all your favorite podcast channels. We're on Roku TV. We're on Amazon Fire TV. We're on YouTube, and we're on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast channels. So if you want to check our our previous shows, go there and listen to those, watch those. And if you're uh, watching on YouTube, leave us a comment. Uh, We'll get back to you on those comments, and we'll have some interesting information uh, over in the YouTube channel. So uh, check us out there. And welcome back. We have Professor Joseph Calhoun, economics professor from FSU. He's joining us again. Thank you for joining us, Joe. What's going on over in Tallahassee? Hey, we're having a great time over here in Tallahassee. We have a beautiful day. Uh, We just came off a big win with our football program, so we're riding high here in Tallahassee and Florida State University. Absolutely. Florida State had a big win, beat number five, North Carolina, last Saturday, and today is Friday, October the 22nd. So, 23rd, that's right. Man, I'm off a day, off a day, date. So, uh, October 23rd, and uh, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a great show, and I'm over in uh, Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, which is near Destin, Florida, and I'm in 30A TV Studio A, and the A is for answers that count. So we've got some great, this is going to be a great show. So we are, as uh, just kind of a, a recap, we are going through the economic theories in Joseph Calhoun's uh, book. He's a co-author of this book. It is called Common Sense Economics. This is the third edition that Joe was a co-author on. I know they're working on a fourth edition right now. And uh, we've gone through the the 12 key economic theories at the front of the book. So, uh, Joseph, you want to give a plug for your book and what's coming out in the fourth edition? Yeah, I want to make sure that I give plenty of credit to my co-authors, especially Jim Gortney and Rick Stroop, who started this book several years ago. They wrote the very first one over the years. They've added Dwight Lee and Tony Ferrini when they moved into the second edition. And then uh, I'm very pleased to be part of the third edition. Yet we're already uh, taking some notes and generating some ideas about making a fourth edition. Uh, anything in economics, especially when it's policy-related and when we get to parts two and three of the book, we talk about international trade and the political process. Always, always needs a little updating, a little refresher, especially now that we're going through this uh, terrible economic time of the pandemic that you know we want to make sure that we stay current. Uh, so we're starting the very early process of uh, drafting the fourth edition. It's going to take us a while, but it's something to tease out there that there will be an update to the book. Good, good. We look forward to that. So, you know, you threw out something there that I think is important, and we just it seems to be a recurring theme in our discussions about the economic theory, and that is politics. The, the, the federal policies that are enacted, even this, on the state level, really have an effect on the, uh, the economic activity that, that individual people and individual businesses uh, take. So I just find that so interesting. And, and this year, like so many things in 2020 with this COVID crisis, so many things have been heightened. And the economic policies and what the federal government has done is just really taken a, a, a front row seat in, in the drivers and the, the economic results that we've seen on a on a the national level and even on an international level and you know the the one of the things that's in the news recently is 
another stimulus package, if you will. I, I, I'm, I'm cautious to use that term, but we've had the PPP program. We've had the idle loans, and uh, we've gone through two rounds of those, and now there's there's discussion of a third and, and hopefully a final round to really uh, send funds out and, and another lifeline to the businesses that have been suffering through this COVID uh, crisis that we've, that we've had in 2020. Yeah, and that's really what the political process does in terms of getting involved in the economic process. The political process, for the most part, just sets the boundaries. It sets the rules. So, yes, we need to be a little cautious about using words like stimulus, although that's an easy word to use because most people know what that means. Right. If the government does something, passes a so-called stimulus package, then we all know what the goal is, is to stimulate the economy, is to try to get it going again. So I, I completely understand why we use those words, but a, a better word is you're simply more broadly defined as fiscal policy, which means the policy that the Congress and the president or the state and the governor makes new rules, new policies in order to try to steer economic activity. Now, of course, most of the time they're going to want more economic activity, not less, but at least theoretically, we could allow for less activity as a result of the policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've had this in the past where we've had this this discussion about unintended consequences. I know we, we spent some time a couple of shows ago about the the cash for clunkers. And that was back in the I believe that was in what what year was that in the in the 2000s, early 2000s? Uh, that was shortly after the Great Recession. So that would have been 2009, 2010. Yeah. So we had the cash for clunkers then. And the 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 uh, ambition or the goal of that was to stimulate new car purchases and to really prop up the the automobile industry when when the effect of that was it really had a negative effect on those lower those people in the lower economic status, those people that relied upon reliable and inexpensive secondhand cars or used cars and it really drove the price up of those because you had such a reduction in the in the in the amount of available used cars at that time so really had a big unintended consequence yes and and, and this is what we see with a lot of uh, whether it's individual decision or whether it's a government decision sometimes people don't really stop and think about the important question what happens next right because we're all consumed with the immediate i have immediate costs and i have immediate benefits and that's all i'm concerned about and if you don't pause and think a little bit more and i understand why people don't do it because it, you really have to think and you have to kind of project out into the future and you, and you have to think about the so-called ripple effect or what an economist would call the secondary effect and that takes a, a lot more time and energy and sometimes people just don't want to take that time and energy so they're only going to focus on the immediate and especially with politicians they they are biased in terms of their decision making for immediate benefits and they're not as concerned about the costs exactly so we focus on the immediate and we don't consider unintended consequences and what we're going to transition to in a moment the 12th element here in part one is the long-term consequences that's even harder to think about uh you know most of us are are just worried about you know hey what's going to happen to me right now and once again, we don't stop and think about, well, how is this decision right now going to impact me five years from now or 10 years from now? Many people don't do that. And then they do that at their detriment because that cost that may occur five or 10 years from now may completely overwhelm the benefits that they get today. Right. Absolutely. 
and and this may be a too too simplistic way to look at it, but you really have uh, if you look at the total economy, you have like a pot of pot of money there. So if you if you shift money around from one one sector to another sector, you're not adding money into it. It has to come from somewhere. And if you look at money that the government gives away or that they they encourage spending or they they make things cheaper and they they have a cost offset then if they're using government money that money comes from people that it's not coming from an outside source it's still coming from within that pot and it comes from other people making tax payments into the system so you don't have new money it's a zero-sum game in that regard it is yes because and people fail to recognize this very simple fact government can't create anything new because in order for something to get in order for the government to give something away it has to take it first right so there's two ways of doing that very well there's actually three ways but we've learned our lesson with printing money uh we didn't learn that lesson in the 60s and 70s and finally milton friedman came along and, and got us all to, to realize that printing money is going to cause inflation and that not only is an economic problem it's a social problem so we basically have three Thrown that out the window. The government just saying, hey, go print me a bunch of new $20 bills and I'll pay for my spending that way. So that is basically off the table. But the other two are you either borrow, which means you're taking it from a future generation, or you tax, right. which means you take it from some people now and give it to another group of people now. Well, that's just shuffling things around. That's not giving anything new. Right. So if you had back to the back to those three things, that's a great way to to post that. If you had um, Venezuela, I guess, is an example of printing money. So we had runaway inflation. So they were basically printing money to cover their obligations and their debt and to stimulate their economy. And what we have done in 2020 has not been printing money. We borrowed money uh, to stimulate to the, the PPP programs, the idle programs we have. We borrowed money for that purpose, and we've been able to borrow that, thankfully, at a very low interest rate. Yes, and and that's the great thing. That definitely makes it easier to do that today. Uh, so if you look at the uh, yields, that is the interest that the government has to pay back on 20- and 30-year bonds, they are at historic lows. So, I mean, for all practical purposes, they're, they're at 0%. So right. no, they're not technically at zero, but they're incredibly low, which means that of course, the government has to pay back the, the par value, the, the the value of the loan. So if it's a million dollar bond, you have to pay back the million, of course. But then to service that debt, that is to pay the interest rate, is very, very low right now. So it makes it easier and less expensive for the government to do that. So yes, good for us and other countries around the world who are doing this debt financing right now. The difficulty is if in a few years or maybe even 10 years from now, if interest rates jump up, then we're still obligated to make those interest payments. So we make interest payments based on what the market bears. So if, if the market is going to push up interest rates, that means financing that debt, servicing that debt is going to become more expensive in the future. But you always have to pay back the principal or what we call the par value on that loan. Right. And I think these these basic principles that we that we're talking about right now and, and those those three elements to to uh, put money back into the economy, that's important when we're looking at 
uh, some of the policies between the Republicans and the Democrats right now as we as we near going to the polls and before Election Day on November 3rd. If we look at the some of the policies uh, of one of the parties where they want to spend more money, they want to go uh, have this the green plan. That's a lot of money that's being spent and, and really approaching or exceeding the, the annual GDP of the of the United States. So you have to scratch your head and say, where does that money come from? How do you do that? If you're going to borrow it, then who are you indebted to and what's the cost of that? Yes, and, and this is part of the concern that some people have in terms of the United States borrowing. A bigger and bigger portion of our borrowing is coming from people outside the United States, whether it's a foreign bank or simply a foreign investor. And when you're indebted to people outside of your country, then you're beholding to them and you may do things or your relationship with that country may change a little bit because your debt is so high. So I, I, that's just, I just wanna put that out there as a, con as a concern. When, when you look at where all that borrowing is coming from, an increasing part of it is coming from outside the United States, and that makes some right. people a little, a little nervous. Yeah, and it's a it's a security national security crisis, or or at least concern. I don't I don't want to throw the word crisis. Yeah, yeah around. I don't think it's quite a crisis yet. But I mean, certainly, if if we keep trending in that direction, then it's going to be a growing concern. I mean, just, so in, in, with international trade, a common argument that is made against international trade is the national defense. I mean, do we really want all of our uh, healthcare uh, products? Do we really want all of our military products made by another country? Well, right. the argument is probably no, because then what if we, um, you, you know, what if the relationship sours and, and we're no longer friendly with that? Okay, well then we're left without being able to produce those things ourselves. It's the same kind of argument that is made with borrowing from everybody. So if you borrow from other countries to a very large degree, and then that relationship turns sour, well, then decisions are gonna be made very differently. And maybe, maybe, our national security would be at risk because of all the money that we owe. Absolutely. And we saw that this year in the COVID crisis where I don't think any of us, uh, common man, didn't think about this before, but who's making our drugs or our pharmaceuticals? And so many of those right. were coming from from China. So, you know, if you look at the, the origin of the the, the COVID-19 being Wuhan, China, then, then it really makes you concerned of, okay, if that came from there and they're also in control of the drug making and the distribution of that, then we could be in trouble real quick. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and, and this would be the right thing for the Chinese to do. They would want to deliver those products and those medicines to their own people. Exactly. And we would do the same thing in the United States. If we were the only maker of a certain item in the world and there was a crisis, well, we would certainly take care of our own people first before we shipped it to other countries. Right. And so you can't blame China for doing that. That's just in their self-interest. Uh, but that is the danger from the United States perspective is that, hey, these incredibly important supplies are coming from another country. And if that country has a crisis or if the relationship uh, turns negative, then we are without those supplies. Right. And that makes some people very nervous. Yeah. Well, let's jump into uh, I know we've kind of talked around some of the components of the, the 12th. Uh, key economic theory in the book, but let's let's hit that head on. And as you said a moment ago, it takes a 
there's there's more long-term secondary effects to decisions or policies that are made. So I'll let you state that more eloquently than I just yeah, said. Yeah, so the, the, again, it's the long-term consequences. It's the asking two questions. And the first question is, is usually not only more fun, but it's also easier to answer. If I make this decision, what happens to me now? Or if you're looking at this from a government's perspective, if I make this decision, what happens to my country or, or to my citizens now? So, and usually the, the immediate benefits and costs are relatively easy to predict. And of course we get them right away. The second question that many people uh, just don't wanna take the time and energy to ask is what happens next? What happens later? And when might that later be? Now, let me be very clear that not all decisions have long-term consequences. As Freud says, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Right. And sometimes an economic decision is just going to give me immediate costs and benefits. So, you know, what you eat for lunch is probably going to just be immediate and there's not, not going to be any long-term consequences. So uh, let me make sure we're clear that not all decisions have long-term consequences, but if they do, and you ignore them as a decision maker, well, you might really be getting yourself into a lot of trouble later on. Right. So um, we need to think about answering that very important second question, what happens next? Right. And, and sometimes it's hard to define when next is. Next may be a year from now, next may be 20 years from now. And of course, the longer that next happens, then the more difficult it is to kind of project out that far. Uh, you know, none of us are very good with predicting the future. And certainly as we predict 20 years out, you know, things get, get really uh, messy and, and much more difficult to do that. But yet if we at least make an attempt to answer that question, what happens next? It may change our mind about what we do today. Right. You know, one thing that in the, as I was reading this chapter, the the broken window fallacy. So this is a different take on a, the broken window fallacy that we've heard as it relates to, to crime and crime prevention. This is an economic theory in that if it's it's not necessarily a good thing for a window to be window to be broken, and you have to pay to fix that. Yes, you employ someone to fix the broken window, but again, if you look at the 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 pot that we have of money, and if you and if you focus on that individual company that had to pay their pay to get their window fixed, they're now paying money to fix their window rather than paying for say bonuses or another uh, expenditure that, that may help the, the company for the long term. This is they're you, they're diverting resources to fix something that really is not necessarily good, but has to be done. Yeah, that's right. And this is the classic example of the seen versus the unseen, the immediate versus the, the later. So uh, continuing with your broken window uh, example, which is one of the most classic examples used in economics, is let's just role play a, a number amount. So I'm the shopkeeper, my window breaks, I have to pay $100 to repair the window. Okay, so $100 gets taken from another opportunity and I pay somebody to come and fix the, the window. Well, 
if you just stop right there, you may say, well, this is pretty good because the, the shop repair person now has a job that they didn't have before. He or she has $100 that they didn't have before. And hey, this is great. This is, this is an increase in economic activity. And if you just stop there, then that's all you see. You're missing the, the, the other consequence. So now if you really think about it, all right, so what do I, the shopkeeper, have? I have a window. Well, I had a window before, so am I really better off? No, I'm just replacing something that I already had. What would be better is if I took that $100 and actually either made a second window or I used it, as you suggest, to give bonuses or I created a new product or I expanded my product line or you know, I did something new. So now at the end, I have the window that I had before and I have something new. Right. So which would you rather have just a simple replacement of all your stuff or would you rather have your existing stuff plus some new stuff? Yeah, obviously. Well, I'd rather the have stuff. my existing stuff plus the new stuff. I'd rather have yeah, more, absolutely. not just replacing everything. Right. And this also relates to the opportunity cost. You, you can only spend that, that hundred dollars one time, one way. That's right. It's not like I've got just a pot of money sitting around with an earmark says, hey, that's for the broken window. And, and then when the window breaks, I just pull it out of there. Well, even if I did, that money is better spent not sitting in a pot of money waiting for the window to be broken. It'd be better used creating a new product or doing something new or buying something new as opposed to just sitting there waiting to replace something that I already have. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, you know, that that has so much overlap in, in, in the other theories that, that we've discussed and really the the basis for economic decisions that we make. You know, we make we make economic decisions on an individual personal basis and we make it on a on a company or a business. And then if you look at it big picture on a national each country and then if you look at it globally, they all interrelate as well. Yeah, and th this is the difficulty that we have with politicians at the federal level because they can deficit spend, they sometimes miss some of these key economic concepts because they're not forced into making the same kind of trade-offs that you and I make or even state governments make. So in the state of Florida, we have a balanced budget as our rule. So the government can't borrow a bunch of money. So when we go through difficult economic times, they are forced to move some of that money around. They can't give everybody what they want. Right. Well, at the federal level, that's not true because at the federal level, they can deficit spend, they can borrow, so they can spend literally twice as much as what they're earning in tax revenue. So they're not faced with those same kind of trade-offs and choices. Now, you know, I'm not trying to paint them as as bad people. They're not. They're just making dis decisions under a different set of constraints. Right. So just like you and I can only borrow so much before the bank says, you know what, you don't have the income to support this. Right. And then we're forced to make trade-offs and give up some things as we want new things. The federal government isn't constrained as much by that and therefore the decisions are different and Absolutely. we see that different and that's why we see such a tremendous amount of federal debt yeah and that's something that you see also right now in the as we started the show when we're looking at this other federal package that's going that's being battled back and forth between congress the senate and the white house and and the the contention is part of the the reason that hasn't passed is the Democrats are looking to for the federal government to bail out some of the states that have deficit spend in the past and they don't have the balanced budget 
like fl the state of Florida does. So uh, a lot of those states are in are in bad trouble from an economic standpoint, from their balance sheet. They're upside down. They owe more money than they have. And this is a this is uh, possibly a way to bail them out with this uh, this federal package that they're looking to to uh, pass through the through the legislation. Yes, I mean two point two trillion dollars is the the last number that's been thrown about. You heard it on the presidential debate last night, and you know you really need to stop and think about how much money two point two trillion dollars is. That is a lot of money. One of the things that I'm personally concerned about is how we have normalized the use of a trillion dollars. Exactly. We throw it around like it's just a, a little bit of pocket change. This is a huge amount of money. And when you hear some politicians say that's not enough, then it should really make you pause for, well, how much do we need? I mean, $2.2 trillion is an awful lot of money. And if somebody wants more than that, we should really pause and say, well, why do you need more than an already insane amount of money? Yeah, that's the, you're exactly right. And that's the scary part of what's happened in this COVID is, is we've just become numb to the word trillion. I mean, the, yes. that, that's, that's insane to uh, think that. But now we're looking at 2.2 trillion is not enough. Or even, even when the number was at the low end on 1.5 trillion, they're saying that's not enough. That's on top of the other trillions that we've already uh, spent or or sent out through the PPP programs. I mean, it's 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 insane just how numb we've become to that to those that amount of money. Yeah, uh, let me give everybody just a little visual here. For those of you who are Florida State fans or at least has at least seen our beloved Doak Campbell Stadium on television, here's what at one trillion dollars would look like. Take twenty dollar bills and stack them up on a pallet. You've all seen a pallet, right? What, you know, the, the wooden little crate that is used to uh, get goods off a, a semi-truck. And I, I want you to take $20 bills and I want you to stack them about 10 feet high on top of a pallet. And then I want you to cover every square inch of sod, not just the field, but all the surrounding areas at Doak Campbell Stadium. That's how much a trillion dollars is worth. Wow. That's only one trillion. And they're talking about That's one trillion. Two. And we're talking about multiple trillions. Yeah. I mean, you would almost stack Dope Campbell Stadium from sod to ceiling with $20 bills to get the amount of money uh, that they're talking about here. It's just a huge amount. And we need to be careful not to become too callous to a trillion dollars because somebody has to pay that back. That yeah. is not free money. Yeah, exactly. And we talked, I mean, we've used the cliche and we've heard it, kicking the can down the road. The Our federal right. government has just made a an art out of that. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's really scary. Now, now we're, now we're filling that can with trillions of dollars in 2020 that, that uh, didn't come from the GDP. I mean, we're, we're borrowing that money and spending it. So Right. We're borrowing it and we're borrowing it in denominations of 20, 30, 20, 10, 20 and 30 year bonds, which means that's how much time we have to pay it back. So the bill's going to come due in 10, 20 and 30 years and we're going to have to pay it back. And the people living and producing economic activity at that time are going to be the ones that are going to be faced with higher taxes in order to pay these huge bills. Yeah. Joe, we're going to have to wrap it there. And uh Man, we've had some great information in this show, some really basics, and we've talked about the 12th key economic theory, and it really just kind of ties everything together, and, and some of the theories we've talked about before, it's similar to that, 
and it really emphasizes it. So bottom line is we live in the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. We have a great economic poli- great economic policies, a system that allows people to succeed and be all that they can be. I know that's a that's an often used term, but that's that's so true in, in the United States of America. And we we appreciate you going through these economic theories. We're going to get on another uh, topic. We're going to get on another series real soon, but it's going to be about economics, your field of expertise. And we appreciate you so much for uh, joining us on these shows. So, Joe, you have a great weekend and best of luck to the Florida State University Seminoles this Saturday. Absolutely. Let's get the chop going. Let's All be right. loud and proud. Thanks for having me. I always have a lot of fun with you, Charles. All right. Thank you. You've been listening and watching Answers to Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove. Thank you for joining us. Check us out on all your favorite podcast channels, YouTube, Roku TV, Amazon Fire TV. Subscribe and hit the notification button. We're out there. Check us out. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. Peace. Answers That Count is brought to you by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting needs, visit beanteam.com for more info. You can listen to more episodes of Answers That Count on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Or visit answersthatcount.com.